You can turn in the Gospel of Matthew to Matthew chapter 8. Jesus and his disciples have crossed to the other side of the sea through a terrible storm, and they enter what appears to be a Gentile-dominated land, and they encounter there uh, something terrible. And so we pick up in verse 28. This is God's word. And when he came to the other side, to the country of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men met him, coming out of the tombs, so fierce that no one could pass that way. And behold, they cried out, What have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Now a herd of many pigs was feeding at some distance from them. And the demons begged him, saying, If you cast us out, send us away into the herd of pigs. And he said to them, Go. So they came out and went into the pigs. And behold, the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the waters. The herdsmen fled, and going into the city, they told everything, especially what had happened to the demon-possessed men. And behold, all the city came out to meet Jesus, and when they saw him, they begged him to leave their region. Thus ends the reading of God's holy word. May he add his blessing to it. Join me in prayer. Father, how wonderful your son is. How wonderful you are. How good you are in sending him into the very heart of darkness to rescue us, ruined and lost sinners all. For at the time of his coming, the whole world, O Lord, was under darkness. For even... On the throne of your people, there was a monster, one who looked more like Nebuchadnezzar than the excellence of your holy law. And yet when the true king came, he displayed the glory of your kingdom, O Lord, in plundering the camp of this domain of darkness. And so as we hear these things, Lord, strange and wonderful Attend our hearts with faith that we may believe and benefit by seeing our King, seeing our hope, seeing your purpose to glorify yourself in defeating the devil and death and all that is ill, casting it into the heart of the sea. Father, that we should benefit from this is too wonderful for words. So grow us, even now, in confidence towards you, equipping us, Father, as we continue to make our way through this world of woe. We ask in Christ's name, amen. One of the more striking moments in the Lord of the Rings movie comes in the two towers, the second part. Uh, the battle at... Helm's Deep is brutal. It's quite a cinematic accomplishment. The men and the elves, this alliance of good, 
They make their stand against evil, and they are beaten. They're beaten back, the wall has been breached, and they've retreated into the final stronghold, and evil is pounding at the door, and the few who remain continue to struggle against it, bracing the door, but in a moment of what feels like despair, Theoden King asks, what can men do against such reckless hate? It's a monstrous evil that seems unstoppable there beating against the doors. It is bested the best of men. There's no reasoning with it. There's no fleeing from it. And the attempts to stand against it have failed. Scripture tells us plainly that man's plight is due primarily to sin for which we are responsible. It does not remove the burden of responsibility from us. We are agents, we have acted, and we have acted against God, plunging, plunging this world into ruin. And our sin continues to trouble and harass us most intimately and regularly. Yet scripture doesn't leave it at that, does it? As horrible as sin is, as dreadful as the fallen heart of man is, it's remarkable that man is still redeemable. And even in his fallen state, traces of his former glory still flicker forth. But there is another creature, another species, if you will. And this species is beyond redemption. This creature is pure malice and deceit through and through, and they burn with a hatred that's much like those foes beating on the door, not to be reasoned with, not to be fled from. I would venture to guess that the demons do not play a very active part in your thinking about your Christian life. That's my guess. You probably can't even remember the last time you thought about the devils. I would further guess that your lack of concern about the devils is not primarily due to the greatness of your confidence in Christ. Rather, it's more likely due to either ignorance or practical disbelief, likely practical disbelief. Mm -hmm. Scripture is plain. The devils are active. They desire our destruction vehemently. And left to ourselves, we are helpless before their malice and their deceit, their cunning and their hatred. But we can certainly think too much of the devils, pry too closely into their workings and designs, it simply won't do to ignore them altogether. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 2.11, we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. Or at least we ought not to be. 
But for one reason or another, such thinking and speaking has become passe, hasn't it? And it seems to me that this places us at a real disadvantage. The world that Scripture envisions, the world we inhabit, is filled with creatures you can't see who want to destroy you. If you countenance that they don't exist, you can see how that puts you in a bad spot, doesn't it? That's why Paul says we would not be outwitted by Satan. We still believe with Luther that though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us. That's not superstition dragged from the 16th century, beloved. That's the world that Scripture envisions. And those lines set up what follows in Luther's hymns. You can't brush by those lines and simply seize what follows. Those lines prepare for what follows in the great hymn. And so I feel as if I have a double task in front of me. I feel like I have to convince you first of the devils. <laughs> Maybe even frighten you a little bit, because this is a terrifying scene. So that your heart may be properly positioned to take active comfort in the one who commands them with a word. And this is no small part of his glory, beloved. The dark spirits here falling, trembling before Christ, begging, acknowledging his authority at this most intimate level. His conquest and conquering of them is no small part of the glory of this king. It's not just that he has atoned for sin, beloved. We do a great job of that as heirs of the Reformation, the substitutionary atonement of Christ. But what sits as part of the glory of that substitutionary atonement of Christ is that he has defeated the devil and his unholy host in yielding his life as a ransom of love. It's not just that our sins are cast into the heart of the sea as Micah foresees. So is the unholy host. Christ casts them into the heart of the sea. And indeed, Revelation envisions a day when there won't even be a sea. So complete will be the removal of all ill. And so let's consider this morning the glory of Christ on display and his supremacy over the devils. First, the devils. Second, the sun. And third, the pigs and the people. First, the devils. And when he came to the other side, to the country of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men met him coming out of the tombs, so fierce that no one could pass that way. And behold, they cried out, What have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Now a herd of many pigs was feeding at some distance from them, and the demons begged him, saying, If you cast us out, send us away into the herd of pigs. First, we see that the devils are real, beloved. They're not figments of 
one's imagination. Christ isn't here accommodating popular superstition. These aren't mental illnesses. These aren't mere madmen. You don't place madness on a herd of pigs, beloved. It shouldn't surprise us as those who have been reading through Matthew's gospel. We already met the devil in Matthew 4 who tempts Jesus. That wasn't a hallucination. That wasn't some sort of fever dream. It was a true encounter with a spiritual entity bent on hostility towards God and indeed all that is good. Even up until this point, three times already, we have met demons who harass and afflict human beings. Matthew 4.24, Matthew 7.22, and Matthew 8.16. And we're going to meet them again multiple times. Significantly, in Matthew 12, Jesus speaks of Satan as a king with a kingdom. He's organized. <laughs> And this kingdom opposes God and is the enemy of all that is good and true and beautiful. The Old Testament is fully aware of the reality of evil spiritual beings. Deuteronomy 32, 17, they sacrificed unto devils, not unto God, to gods whom they knew not, to new gods that they that came up newly, whom your fathers did not fear. Or Psalm 106, 37. Yea, they sacrificed their sons and daughters unto devils. In the Gospels, we meet a swarm of devilry. Both in Israel and as we are here, outside of Israel. Now, sometimes this devilry is rather dramatic as it is here. This is pretty dramatic, isn't it? This is the stuff of horror stories. But sometimes the devilry is rather subtle. And if Jesus hadn't drawn our attention to it, we would miss it. Recall the scene between Jesus and Peter. Peter rebukes Jesus, saying he should not go to the cross. Jesus rebukes Satan. <laughs> and then tells Peter he's setting his mind on the things of man and not on the things of God. In the epistles, Paul affirms Deuteronomy 32 and Psalm 106 and says that demons are behind false religions. What pagans sacrifice they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be a participant with demons, 1 Corinthians 10.20. And it's in the light of this type of thinking that our own salvation is presented as a rescue from this demonic kingdom. The reign of Satan's power, the reign of darkness and our willing participation in his reign of malice and lie. So Colossians 1.13 can say, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Furthermore, Peter, Jude, James, and John not only affirm the existence of these evil spirits, 
but all variously warn the church to be aware of their ongoing harassment, especially in the demonic encouragement unto pride, jealousy, cruelty, and divisions in the household of God. So if you've ever been through a church split or anything that feels like a church split, you've felt the sulfuric breath of the devils, beloved. Make no mistake. So you have demons working on a large scale, empowering pagan worship. You have demons working at a very intimate and personal level, possession, harassment, temptation of individuals and households in ways both dramatic and quite often subtle. But whatever the shape of their activity, its goal is always the same. Oppose God. God as the one who is light, who is love, who is truth, finds his enemies as darkness through and through as steeped in malice and in deceit, not partly beloved, but through and through. Thus, we see their unrelenting hatred of man. And that's the sense we get here. These men who are possessed of the devils, they're tormented. They're miserable Matthew's account, interestingly, is much shorter than Luke's and Mark's, yet even Matthew highlights the heinousness of their plight. These men dwell among the tombs. They are the living inhabiting the realms of the dead. They're wraiths, the Nazgul. This is a miserable portrait of their existence under Satan's dominion. It's not just death, it's living death. She's somehow worse. But even more than this, you get the picture here that it's not just these two men who are tormented. These two men are centuries of death. Centuries, not centuries, centuries. Guardians. They're barring the way. You get the sense that this region is imprisoned. And these two foul minions go out to confront the true king to keep him from coming into this region. Matthew gives a detail that the other gospels don't contain. So fierce, these men were, that no one could pass that way. The way is shut. Light, life, cannot enter here. It's locked under the kingdom of darkness. And that seems to be Matthew's main point here. The power of darkness, the power of sin, the power of death, generating a world of living dead. Finally, one has come who is strong enough to walk the way. Beloved, our encouragement comes not in assuring ourselves that these nightmares don't exist. 
but in standing in faith with the true Son, our King, who expels all darkness and who alone can slay the dragon in the power of his holiness. Do you believe that the devils are real? Or do they just live in like third world countries? <laughs> Somehow our sophistication has outstriped them. I assure you the devils are real and not just over there, beloved. In the same way that you are an immortal soul, in the same way that the Holy Spirit truly dwells within God's people, in the same way that the risen Lord ascended and entered in the heavenly places, that angels are true ministering spirits. All of this wonder that exists in the unseen places, beloved, which is no small part of our faith. The same conviction leads us to say that a monstrosity exists there, the likes of which the imagination of Tolkien or Lewis or Milton maybe just barely glimpsed. We don't have the leisure of not believing in the devils. We don't have the luxury that they are going to kill us one way or the other. Scripture would have us equipped. And the first step into equipment is knowing that they're there, knowing that they delight to see sin and destruction kicked up on levels small and large. Further, Westminster Larger Catechism, did you know it talked about the devils in the catechism? Westminster Larger Catechism 105 states that the first commandment forbids all compacts and consorting with the devil and hearkening unto his suggestions. So we're made aware that his assault can be both brazen and subtle. And we are to be aware of both. I think we probably think that the brazen stuff is no more. It's plain. There was possession in the Gospels. There's possession in Acts. I mean, you can go and to the annals of church history, and it's harder to know with the same certainty that we know it took place in Scripture, but it seems like it's happening. The brazen side of this thing. And quite frankly, beloved, it feels like the brazen side is kind of making a comeback. We live at a really strange cultural moment where both spiritism and materialism are both very prominent. But as for the brazen, beloved, stay away from anything that whiffs of the occult. Just stay away from it. Fortune tellers, tarot cards, Ouija boards, all of those things. The things that our silly enlightenment brains tell us is just superstition. Stay away from it. It's sitting on the doorstep of a darkness that nobody understands. We think it's just messing around. They see an opportunity. 
Stay away from it, beloved. Anything that whiffs of it. As for the subtle, whenever sin is at hand, whenever your heart rises up in pride, whenever you're prompted to condemn, contend zealously for your own will, wherever fear is rampant, you can know that the breath of the devils is nearby. Because those are the things they love to see spread because they want destruction and chaos. Beloved, we must not be ignorant of his designs. But whether brazen or subtle, we know where to go, don't we? We don't need to worry about figuring out what roots or herbs bring out devils, what incantations or names we need to master. We know that there's one name above all others, beloved. It's the name of Jesus Christ. And so we can consider next the power of the Son. Now a herd of many pigs was feeding at some distance from them, and the demons begged him, saying, If you cast us out, send us away into the herd of pigs. And he said to them, Go. So they came out and went into the pigs, and behold, the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the waters. Behold the excellencies of Christ here. The excellencies of Christ, beloved. His nobility, his power, and the true hope that he brings. It's all right there, isn't it? His nobility. He's accosted by a nightmare. I mean, these are simply terrifying figures from among the graves. And the impression that Matthew gives us is that he stands in the beauty of a quiet majesty. He highlights their ferocity, the threat that they pose to everyone, the fear that has gripped the hearts of all in their presence. And there stands Christ unmoved, knowing that he must walk that way, knowing that he will walk that way. For the gospel's going forth to the ends of the earth. And the enemy's camp is going to be plundered from one end of this earth to the other. This scene feels like something out of Dracula. When Van Helsing and the men encounter the ghastly figure of Lucy, who by this point has deteriorated into an iteration of living death, and she's made her life among the tombs and they encounter her in the dead of night. It is a scene that is most unsettling. And their courage in the face of it is remarkable. And it is a courage, beloved, that is fueled by love. A love which emboldens and ennobles them to stand in the face of horror to work her redemption. So it is for the beloved son. It is his love for the father who has purposed the son's glory in the plundering of this heinous kingdom and the ransom of those who are under this ill sway. Children, this scene in Matthew is scary. It's really scary. 
It gets scarier the older you get, the more imagination you have. But it's also wonderful at the same time, isn't it? It's wonderful because we see that Jesus is not afraid. He's never afraid, not for a moment. And the same courage which led him to sleep in the face of a terrifying storm now stands on display before us in the face of these villains. He's unafraid because all things have been made through him. Things in heaven, things on earth. All things, visible and invisible, as we confess every week. And he's the one who loves us and has given his life for us, assuring us that he takes care of us, even in scary moments like this. Children, whenever you are afraid, whatever the reason may be, you can pray to the Lord who is over all things, Jesus Christ. We see his power so plainly on display in this, don't we? Don't miss his power. This isn't a figure, beloved. This isn't a parable. This is an actual encounter. Once we're into this scene at that level, you get the wonder of this man. <laughs> Just by his presence, this otherwise unstoppable spiritual evil knows its limits. They are compelled to confess that Jesus is the Son of God. They must acknowledge his supremacy. They must acknowledge his glory. You can almost feel them tormented by the very fact. It's like a squirming and a wriggling, but the truth has out, and they know that the truth is their very bonds. Not only that, but they see in him a reminder that their end is near. Have you come here before the time to torment us? The devils know that God's word cannot fail. They hate him. And one of the reasons they hate him is because they know who he is. One whose word cannot fail. They know that their appointed time is coming. They know that their doom is sure. They know that the seed of the woman will crush the head of the seed of the serpent. They know it must be so. And Christ's presence before them presses that home like a blazing iron. Perhaps we do well at this point to note that we're the slowest creatures in the cosmos to believe God's word. Even the animals obey God. The demons acknowledge his word. Why are we so slow? Oh, we of little faith. There's encouragement to be had in this. Not only is his power on display, but the hope that he brings to a world harassed by a darkness preying upon sin. There's encouragement in this because the time of sin and death is limited by their own admission. It will come to an end. Darkness will give way to the light. And that's encouraging, beloved. Because we know that the light has dawned and the arrival and the death and the resurrection and the ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ, but it's rather a private knowledge, isn't it? It doesn't seem that everybody knows it. 
And so the world goes on drinking of their darkness as if the light hasn't come, as if Christ hasn't come and has shown plainly that the world is fading away. And then it's only those who abide in the sun who remain in life. But here we get it, not just from God's word, but from the mouth of enemies that says, yeah, we know our time is up. We know this reign of fear and death is limited. We're trying to do as much harm as we can until it's over. Beloved, live not in the despair and the despondency of his lies. Lies which would convince you that sin and death have the upper hand, but when exposed to the truth, they're forced to acknowledge their time is up and it's coming to an end rapidly. We can also mark how much power is in a single word of Christ. It's stunning, the, again, literary economy of Matthew. The demons speak a lot here. They're multiplying words. They're the primary speakers in this. Jesus says one word. And all is restored. That seems to be one of their tactics. They multiply words. And by multiplying words, they cause confusion. They do much harm in the multiplication of their lies, the multiplication of their cruelty. One word from Christ, beloved, is a wellspring of life. It's no wonder that as we stand against these spiritual powers, it's the word of God and prayer that is particularly profile as our weapons. Ephesians 6, take the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit. There's encouragement even to be had, particularly for mothers, I think, or parents of young children, as you come to public worship and you feel like, I didn't catch the whole sermon, I didn't catch the whole worship. Just a bit, beloved. Just a, a morsel of God's truth, like lambas bread, will sustain you for days upon days upon days. So powerful, is it? You don't need to catch the whole thing. And God's providence has you distraction. Grab the truth that you can and know for sure he's feeding you, beloved, because he delights to strengthen his own Mark that Christ has no need for the magical formula which would have been prevalent in this day. Exorcisms were sort of a small industry at the time. Magic was rife and potions were rife and incantations and names were rife. Jesus says, go. <laughs> go. Just go. He says it in the height of dignity, the height of nobility, and they go. He's already told Satan to depart. If he can tell the king to get away, certainly these pitiful minions yield to his word. So whatever iteration we confront ourselves with, whatever iteration confronts us in this life, whether it's the dramatic version or the subtle version, the weapon we wield against darkness is nothing other than the word of God the truth of God's word, the victory and the power that are ours 
in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what this region was exposed to, the power of Christ's word. So we consider last and briefly the pigs and the people. The herdsmen fled and going into the city, they told everything, especially what had happened to the demon-possessed men. And behold, all the city came out to meet Jesus. And when they saw him, they begged him to leave their region. The first thing I want to say is that it's very difficult not to see something like a scapegoat ritual happening here. Are you familiar with this? On the Day of Atonement, the sins of the people would be placed on the head of the goat, and the goat would be sent into the wilderness to bear the sins of the people out of the region, taking that which was foul and placing it into a region of chaos. It's very similar to what is happening here. These evil spirits are placed upon this herd of pigs, and these pigs are cast into the heart of the sea, all at the word of Christ. Again, we should note that when we see the substitutionary atonement of Christ, we think primarily in forensic terms, that he's accomplishing forgiveness, that he's establishing us in righteousness as those who have not only been forgiven of sins, but welcomed as God's beloved son. The stranger coordinate to this, which would have been much nearer at hand to both scriptures thinking and in the early church, is that in that forensic act, there was also this spiritual reality which took place, where the cross disarmed the spiritual powers. The cross and the resurrection and the ascension disarmed the spiritual powers. That's Paul's language in Colossians 2. So we're reminded that truly Christ has borne our sins and he's cast them into the heart of the sea. He says, just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the monster and the belly of the sea, I added the belly of the sea. So also the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth, dealing with our sin, removing our sin, beloved. And in this redemption, in this forgiveness of sins, there was simultaneously a rescue, beloved, where the power that this darkness exercised over our hearts was broken, beloved. The spirit that was at work in the sons of disobedience, was expelled, and instead you became an inhabitation of the Holy Spirit, beloved. From a haunt of nightmares to a temple of glory by the work of God in Jesus Christ. Both of those angles are important, for they both attest to the glory of our God and the redemption that he has accomplished in Jesus Christ, beloved. He didn't just forgive you. He rescued you. So now live as free men and women. That's the saddest part about this, isn't it? This region gets liberated. He comes and he kills the gods. But what do the people say? We don't want that liberty. Keep your liberation. We prefer the old ways. We prefer the old gods. The old gods gave us flesh to eat. 
The old gods never failed us. You say I've got to lose the world to gain my soul. They say I can have the world. They just want my soul. I can't even see my soul. What good is it? He comes and he breaks the power of darkness over this region. And the people see a threat to their way of life. And so they beg him to leave. It's not a coincidence that the same verbs that Matthew uses to describe the activity of the demons, they go out and meet him and they beg him. It's the same language that he uses of the people. They go out and meet him and they beg him. Beloved, the inhabitants of this region look like the gods that they serve and the gods that they serve are devils. There's many ways you could take this, but we confess that Christ has broken the dominion of death and the devil and sin over our hearts. And yet so frequently we live as captives, don't we? Every yielding unto sin is casting our lot back with the monster from whom Christ has delivered us, beloved. They experienced the liberation that Christ alone can bring. We have experienced the liberation from the powers of darkness that Christ alone has bring. Don't downplay your sin. Every iteration of our sinful flesh, every willful acting, every exercise of that foulness is lapsing, beloved, into the former ways of belonging to one who is unspeakably ill. It's a humbling angle on our sin, is it not? It would undo us were it not for the mercy and the grace open to us in our Savior who says that he came to work a complete salvation. One wherein he was teaching us to remove the old ways gradually, bathing us in his light, bathing us in the forgiveness, strengthening us on that portion of life which is ours by the Spirit in the word seized upon by faith and prayer. Beloved, live not to the old king. Live to the new king, one who is full of truth and light and life and grace. He has come to make you his own. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the many faceted witness of your word. We thank you for the excellencies of the redemption which you have worked for us. We pray, O oh Lord, that you would help us to heed your word. Help us to lean not on our own understanding. Help us, Father, to receive the instruction which you provide, the light which you shed, and the strength which you extend as we look to our King and our God. For we ask in his name, amen.